This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Theolyn Arduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and I'm joined by our arts editor, Lucy Dallas. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Thea. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. I was thinking perhaps we should be really on brand this week and say that we've both mostly been reading the TLS. We can and should, because it's true, apart from anything else. <laughs> um, yes, it one, is. one of the big pieces we've got this week is by Rory Stewart, isn't it, on um, Afghanistan? The Afghanistan Papers, A Secret History of the War. It's a big book, this, really big book. I mean, I don't mean in its extent, although it is quite large, I think, but it's... Um, it's got an interesting story behind it, hasn't it? The book itself. Yeah, well, it, it's, it, 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 I mean, Rory Stewart explains it. He says, I'm just going to read a little bit out because he says it very succinctly. In 2008, in a remarkable burst of either self-confidence or sabotage, the US government decided it would analyse its successes and failures in Afghanistan in public and in real time. And then it makes this huge body, which is called a Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction, SIGAR, which investigates all all the US operations in Afghanistan, as far as I can tell. I mean, I think from, you know, 2001. And it's got a huge amount of funding and it's fully supported. Mm, It's $60 million per year with 200 full-time federal employees based in Washington, D.C. and Afghanistan. It's extraordinary. Astounding. Yeah. And then then, uh, a journalist from the Washington Post, Craig Whitlock, was told that they had conducted confidential interviews as well as part of the research. So I think the project is public, but there were confidential interviews. And the idea being that that maybe everybody was a bit more candid in those interviews. And so he put in a freedom of information request and they tried, tried not to <laughs> tried not to let him basically. And then he won. And so this book, which is written, that's why it's called A Secret History of the War, isn't it? Because it's the it's the confidential interviews, I think. Mm, it's a kind of an edited selection of some, I think, 400 of, of these interviews and interviews conducted by um, uh, an oral history team as well with the US Army, as well as Don, uh, Donald Rumsfeld's internal memoranda, which you would, well, you, I was going to say you would pay money to, to read, but, but you, can you, pay money. Can, you can pay pounds. money and read them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of, it's completely fascinating, isn't it? Because... There's this enormous amount of research uh, and the sort of depth um, that goes into it, but then Rory Stewart says, "Well, there's all of this, these amazing sort of facts and opinions." But I think it's safe to say that Rory Stewart has a problem with how they're interpreted. Mm, I think. Well, I think the book the book kind of purports to show what went wrong. And this is a, a quotation: uh, "What went wrong and how successive presidents and their administrations failed to tell the truth." And yet, yeah, Rory Stewart finds it does something quite different really which is you know which is not without problems yes and he's I think he's sort of saying it's it, it's sort of it's as though they're asking a great big question and getting a great big answer whereas what he's what he's suggesting is that you know you, you can't go in and just solve everything that's that's not really a very realistic 
prospect at any stage. But what you can do with some funding and local knowledge is you can mitigate some of the worst bits of particular situations. You can defect, not defect, you can protect and defend. You know, that there are quite pragmatic things that you do on the ground along with the people, because the other big problem he has is, is the attitude towards the Afghan people that these, mm. these interviews seem to show. Um, I think he gets, he gets extra points, Rory Stewart, for a very nice opening to the piece, which I'm going to read now. At the beginning of Moby Dick, Ishmael imagines himself appearing on a bill sandwiched between two great events. One is the great contested election for the presidency of the United States. The other is the bloody battle in Afghanistan. The joke lies partly in incongruity, the lack of any connection between the United States and a landlocked country 7,500 miles away. Flash forward a century and a half, and, and here we are. Yeah, yeah, quite here we are, yeah. Mm. And he, um, I mean, I spent a lot of time there. Well, I think he's. I think he was one of the people who was interviewed by Seagar uh, as well. Was he? Oh, I hadn't, I hadn't twigged that. Yeah. Um, oh, yes, no, that's right. He does say that, doesn't he? He says that he, that he was a bit more... Um, he was a bit more um, forthright when he talked to them. Yes. I think. Um, uh, but, yeah, and, and, and he takes issue with the way the Afghan people are represented because there's a sort of assumption that you've got to go in and show them everything. They don't know how to do anything. Mm, they're very othered. Yeah, totally. And he kind of says, well, that's, you know, he, he says, what if... What if they're just like us? <laughs> they're just and dealing with a set of you know their own local and international problems. Why don't we approach them like that rather than going, oh, we've got to go in and show them how to do everything and then semi-blame them for what goes wrong at the end for not doing things our yeah, way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very, it's very, very interesting, isn't it? It is. It is. And on a completely different note, I say to you, uh, back. Or bark. Yes. Well, if you if you want to, <laughs> if you want to, um, if you want a bit of transcendence, who doesn't? Then exactly, a little bit of transcendence in your in your day. Um, then we have a lovely essay by Stephen Isselis, the very internationally renowned cellist Stephen Isselis, about the Bach cello suites. Um, he he has written um, a book about them, which is coming out in a couple of weeks. But this is just kind of what he. It's it's about why why he thinks why people talk about when people talk about Bach and his music they sort of reach for words like divine. Um, it seems sort of otherworldly, and he says whereas they don't for say Mozart and Beethoven, two other big beasts who we've discussed on the podcasts um, relatively recently. He's called trying to see where that comes from, and then he talks about the Bach cello suites in particular and his knowledge of it. Uh, and it's really beautiful. What I recommend is re read the essay and listen to the cello suites at the same time. And that, if that if that doesn't give you transcendence, I don't know what will. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, for both of those pieces, um, people will have to pick up a copy of the TLS or, or find it online. Because coming up on this week's show... Literary festivals are once again a thing, a thing that we can do in person, but not only. We'll discuss a couple of upcoming ones. And Trial by Lyric Fire, the translator, poet and critic Sasha Dugdale will tell us about Russian protest poetry and the rise of Galina Rimbu. But first, I value fame as much as if I had been born a hero. These are the words of the Restoration playwright Afra Ben, who we hear this week, seems formed for our noisy, sex-obsessed times. As the fourth volume of the Cambridge edition of the works of Afra Ben appears, Janet Todd and Derek Hughes, both scholars of Ben, join us to tell us more about Restoration England's first woman of letters. Jan and Derek, hello to you both. Um, hello. Um, now, we don't tend to speak to more than one person at a time, simply because I fear our tech can't stretch to that, but we're going to give it a go this week. And if the line sounds echoey, it's probably because you're in Venice, possibly in a gorgeous palazzo and marble walls do little for sound quality. We are not in a palazzo, let me put you straight on there. <laughs> we're in a big concrete new flat. <laughs> well, still it's Venice, so, it is, so, yeah, so yeah. there you go. Um, so if I can just return you to those words from the beginning of your joint review, that she seems formed for our noisy sex-obsessed times. Can you tell us what you mean uh, by that and what it is about herself and her work that feels so current? 
I think it's it's mainly because she was so much a, a woman of masks that she was somebody who thought you made yourself by performance. You performed different selves as you went through your life, and you you took off different selves as well. And I think we're we're a bit like that. Um, she was also she was very opinionated, and she she moved her opinions with with her times. And I think we in our time now have to move our opinions and change pretty quickly and keep up with where things are. She was very attuned to to sort of fashion and and feelings and uh, what the public wanted. So I, I was thinking in that way she was noisy. But I mean, after all, between her period and the 20th century, women didn't really write that much about sexuality. Uh, but in the last what, for the last 50, 60 years, we have been obsessed with it. We write about sex. Absolutely, it has come to the fore. And Afrobent is extraordinary in the freedom she takes on the subject of sexuality, about female desire, about the perversions of sex, the perverse longings of people, um, the mixture of power and sex, the, the muddle of it, the confusion of it. She deals with all that in a way that I don't think anybody has dealt with it until the 20th century, at least. And, uh, I mean, the result was often a a kind of um, darkly humorous plays in which the men tend to be violent aggressors to each other as well as to the women, and the women are often witty and and generally try to help each other out. I mean, that's sort of Afrobend's calling card, isn't it? I I think it is to some extent. They're they're also rivals, but where they can, I think they they do what they can for each other, and there, there is certainly friendship, but... Women do need wit and cleverness to get on. And the foolish good person doesn't come off very well in Afrobent's world um, or probably in the, in the restoration generally. So, yes, I, I think she, she, is, she deals with female friendships. It's obvious that she had female friends, but she had male friends too, um, which, again, is somewhat unusual. She had men who were intellectual equals with her. Um, and so where she certainly dealt a great deal in her plays with um, sexual desire. Um, in her life, she spent a great deal of time, it seems, arguing with men, being concerned with what was in their minds as well as in other parts of them. As you sort of suggested, she if she's a writer for our times, she was also very much a writer of her own times, you know, so she was she was writing in a in a in a very specific historical moment, sort of its own uh, clashes and, and choices. You know which side to support, who to work for. Um, could you maybe give us a, a a brief sketch of that rather fraught backdrop? Well, is it, is it, I mean, the big thing I think one always has to remember about her is that she we don't know much about that early life, almost nothing. But she grew up under Puritan rule in the Commonwealth, and she had a huge dislike for parliamentary rule and the idea of the rule of law, um, the idea of a government that involves itself in people's private lives and starts legislating on morality. She really found that grim beyond belief. She also thought that um, in that sort of world, women could not really rise because their um, attributes of wit and beauty and so on were of no use there because the the power of of the patriarchal power was so great. So... After the Restoration, the Restoration that is of Charles II, so much changed. And to many um, more serious people, perhaps, or more puritanical, it seemed a very loose and loose period. It was also very violent and very, um, very in many ways, a very cruel period. But for Ben, the idea of a court and of this group of people who were clever and witty and cared about the arts, this was really a, a, a splendid sort of... Um, an arena, and when it's also tied in with with the theatre, um, it, it means that she feels comfortable in the Restoration period in the way that she could not have felt um, in the earlier period. But very quickly, the the enthusiasm that, that the populace felt for the uh, restored monarchy um, diminished, and the entire period when she was working is beset with plots and incipient rebellions um, and efforts of the um, now demoted puritanical parliamentary capitalist party, whatever you want to call it, uh, the effort of that to come back into power. And she is always on the side of royalism, of the authority, um, because she fears that in any kind of disruption, 
any kind of rebelliousness, women particularly, will come off very badly. I mean, she's very sort of Shakespearean in this. She thinks that order and degree are required. And when we think about her as a sexy and jolly writer of um, gender bending and, and fun and so on, I think sometimes we forget that her politics are, are, are quite different from our own and sometimes a little bit uncomfortable. Um, it's probably her most famous play now, but was it the Rover in, in the 1670s that really did kind of propel her to, to the fame that she so wanted? I think the Rover was the first known success and the most successful play of all was perhaps The Emperor of the Moon in the following decade, which was a farce. Uh, when the theatre had reacted against sex comedy. Uh, but we, there are several occasions, three occasions, on which she complains of the lack of success of a play, attributing it to the fact that she was a woman. On each occasion, we can see that she'd failed to spot an impending change of fashion from which male writers were suffering as much as she was. So the, the record suggests that, uh, that she was. She was, in fact, a very dependable uh, dramatist. Uh, in 1678, a whole lot of comedies failed. There was only one comedy put on the following season, and that was The Famed Courtesans. That was by Alfred Ben. She was a safe pair of hands. Uh, during a political crisis round about 1679, uh, 1680, there was a drop in the demand for comedy. When the crisis was resolved, eight new comedies were staged. Four of them, four, were by Afrodan. So it wasn't just the rover. She really was a dependable professional. And we know, uh, as, I, as we point out in the review, that if you consider the years 1670 to 1689, the years of her activity, she had more new plays put on in that period than any single male dramatist. That's extraordinary. Isn't it, it is extraordinary. In one in one season, it was four out of the eight new plays were hers. Is that right? Yeah. So it is extraordinary. Um, well, so this new volume. Let's let's come to the new volume. Um, it covers the plays between 1682 and 1696. Although, as you pointed out, she she actually died in in 1689 at the age of 48. So. Where was she up to at this point in her career, just before she died, and what happened in the immediate aftermath of her death? Did her did her play did her popularity wane at all, or, or did it did it stay high? Well, it, it waned pretty thoroughly. I mean, the world had changed. Uh, I should point out this is the first volume. It's, it's those plays, but it's the first volume to appear. So we haven't seen the the other volumes yet. Um, but this volume um, does have some very good work of hers, but. What happens immediately afterwards when she actually dies is that um, people capitalise on her. She's famous. She's famous, admittedly, to some extent, as a, a lewd writer, as a writer who is a, a little sexy. And there's a, a lot of um, work attributed to her that is not by her. But the plays, the earlier plays um, that she wrote, the very good ones, the, the sex comedies, they were now out of fashion. And to occasionally they were redone and um, you know, taken, well, they were they expurgated, I suppose, uh, and put on, but they, they never really made it. Um, and finally, she, she dies out of the theatre. But what does really make it is that one novella, Orinoco, which comes from the last year of her life, um, which was made into a play by Southern, and that play did tremendously well and that goes on that sort of keeps her name um, up in lights to some extent but she herself sort of dies with the restoration the restoration went out of fashion um, and the sentimental drama of the 18th century um, and on into the 19th is, is quite at odds with anything from the restoration so it's not peculiar she falls out of fashion, you know, it's what happens to a lot of them. But since in the 18th century, they, they became so clear that men and women should be so different and should write differently. She had a great deal more opprobrium than the men did. You mentioned towards the end of your piece, um, the Afroban paradox, how in light of her, her late popularity, still relatively few of her works are, are known, let alone staged. So I wonder if on a parting note, you might 
tell us each of you one, say, we're going to have to limit it to one each, um, a play that you would like to see performed more and why? Perhaps, Derek, you could go first. I would like to see the City Eras um, performed. It has not been performed, as far as I know, since the early 18th century, when it had not been performed for over 20 years. It's a play based in politics in that it celebrates the triumph of the supporters of James II over uh, those, the Whigs who had tried to exclude him from the succession. Uh, but it interweaves a, uh, the political plot with a quite brutal sexual plot in which on the one hand in the politics we see a burglary in which the house of the Whig villain is penetrated, he is humiliated, he is tied up, he is robbed. But interwoven with this is the seduction of a very vulnerable and dignified uh, widow, Lady Galliard. And the two are interwoven. At, at 11 o'clock, the hero turns up to burgle the house of his of his villainous uncle. At 12 o'clock, he turns up to seduce his target. At one o'clock, he's burgling again. And you get a huge ambiguity. You get Afrobans' uh, support for the kind of royalist authority, which Jan has talked about, uh, very illuminating. And yet we also see the dark side of that, uh, of that authority what Tory, what royalist principles are like when they cease to be a template for governing the kingdom and instead become a template for governing sexual relationships. And Janet, how about you? Oh, it's so difficult to choose because I think they're wonderful. I know, it's a terrible question. I'm so sorry. I'm inflicting pain on you. I suppose I'd go for one that is, has been put off on, but I have not actually seen it, um, The Lucky Chance. I think that could be put on in the National Theatre in a, in, a, in a wonderful way. Um, it's got the usual Ben plot, or at least the usual sort of characters. Um, in the centre of it, you have a desirable man. It's always the body of the man is always very desirable in Ben, and women look at it in, in the way that um, later, I think, um, in most fiction, uh, it's the other way around. Uh, but... The desirable man there um, is, is pretty tawdry. Um, he's a young blade. He's called Gay Man. He suffers poverty in a way that most of the other um, heroes don't quite. Um, so you get scenes of his, um, his sort of ghastly lodgings house. And he's so poor that he actually has to prostitute himself to an ugly old woman uh, so that he can fit himself out in fine clothes to court the woman that he loves. Um, in the usual thing, the man has a choice um, of two women and it's a matter of which he chooses and so on. It, and it's all central thing. But you also have, I think, more of an understanding of that distinction between the old, sometimes the impotent, um, merchant, middle class, city men with the money who think they can buy women um, and don't have much wit and are not um, and know how to make money, but don't know how to do much else. And these young blades who don't work for a living, um, who are originally of the court, but much later of just of the town. Um, and these two are, are set against each other in this play as they are so often. But here at the end, after a lamentable scene in which the one old man and the young blade actually gamble for the body of the woman who is outraged when she discovers this. At the end, the old men, instead of, of staying in a rage and becoming utterly ridiculous, they say, good heavens, we are perhaps foolish old men who thought for a minute, you know, we could cousin uh, young blades out of the mistresses. And so you have a kind of geniality at the end of that that I think is missing in a lot of her plays. So it's it's a kind of sex comedy, but not, not a very harsh one. And one that I think catches the balance very, very well. Um, well, that's a challenge for theatre directors then, the, the city heiress or the lucky chance. Um, Dan and Derek, thank you very much for joining us. 
Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank we you. enjoyed it. Still to come on the show, a few literary festivals for your diaries and Russian protest poetry. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And we are happy to announce the return of the exclusive TLS subscription offer. Exclusive, that is to our podcast listeners. For just £5 or $5 or the equivalent in whatever currency you use, you will receive six issues of the TLS and that's print and digital. So there's really quite a lot to be getting on with. Go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod to take up this offer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Now, before we turn to Russian protest poetry, let's catch up with some recent-ish developments. Lucy, uh, literary festivals have been coming back to life in physical places with physical people. Yes, they have. Oh, well, actually, the, the word is it seems to be hybrid, doesn't it? Yes. So that you can actually go to an event, but, um, but it will be online as well. Uh, or some of the events will only be online. It's it, it's kind of mix and match. Edinburgh happened about a month ago, which it didn't last year. Um, and there's some others which are upcoming. Um, there's one one that you know about, isn't there? It's where my English half is from, is uh, the Liverpool Literary Festival, which starts on Friday the 8th of October. It's in its fifth year. And yes, hybrid is the word. So some are, some, some are digital only and some events are in person. Uh, and they're mostly at the uni, uh, the university campus, which is, which is just really nice to imagine life on campuses again. Mm, people reading things and talking about things. And... <laughs> exactly. And buzzing around yeah. and sitting about on lawns. And although I suppose it's getting a bit cold and wet now. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say in October, you'd be lucky, but okay. But yeah, yeah, and they sound, they sounds like they have some great stuff. The novelist Andy Osho, Hermione Lee, who will be talking about her Tom Stoppard biography, uh, Colm Tobin, who seems to be a fixture at Liverpool's festival, so they're clearly clearly doing something right. Um, but for more information, go to www.liverpool.ac.uk forward slash literary hyphen festival. And before that, if you're on the other side of the Atlantic in that beautiful twinning that is New York and Liverpool. Um, there's also the Brooklyn Literary Festival. Lucy, you've been mining their programme. Mm, yeah, that is a bit earlier, isn't it? The main, I think the main day is on October the 3rd, which is this weekend. The main thing is this weekend. Um, but it's got uh, it's got tonnes and tonnes of authors, actually. 
Um, they've got a thing called a literary marketplace. And the, the lots, they're going to talk to lots of authors. They've got, I mean, just for some names, they've got Paul Oster, they've got Alison Bechtel, whose um, most recent work we talked about uh, with uh, Irina Dumitrescu about Guide to Super oh, fitness, fitness. Yes. Yeah, that one. RJ Palacio, Francine Prose, Joyce Carol Oates, also who we've spoken to on the podcast, Sion. Who I'm a big fan. Who you of adore, yeah. Iceland. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say I'm a big fan. Um, Raven Leilani, Clifford Thompson, our own Clifford Thompson, who's also been on the podcast. We're laying claim to all these people. <laughs> yeah, we're just saying they're all ours. Ours, ours, ours. We've had the great good fortune to uh, to work with some of them. Samantha <laughs> Schweblin. Oh, and brilliantly. On, on, I think, uh, Saturday, October the 2nd, Henry Winkler, who is... Oh, go on. From Happy Days, yes, from Happy Days. The yeah, you the Fonz. Because <laughs> I was going through the list and I went, oh, oh okay. It looks as though he's written... <laughs> Didn't see that one coming. ...a set, uh, or he's co-written a set of what seems to be extremely successful children's books. Isn't that brilliant? Oh, right, because they have a... Um... There's a children's day yep. at this festival as well. Yeah, on Saturday. Um, so that's, what's that? That's the second. And just uh, as you mentioned the children's day, there's um, just another thing that I heard about, which reminded me of when we've been, you know, talking about um, places which are linking to independent bookstores. There's a platform called Bookversal. Uh, it was built by two women, Laura Hobson and Alexandra Melnikova, a couple of years ago. They both work in digital design and tech um, because uh, apparently Alexandra noticed that her mixed race child couldn't really relate to any of the very blonde, golden haired Rapunzels and Cinderella's and things, you know, that she was seeing in the traditional stories. So they made a platform you know, just showing all sorts of representation um, uh, in in children's literature so that you can easily look for them. And they uh, and they link to independent bookstores wherever possible. Well, this reminds me, and I, I'm probably taking us off on another of my special tangents, but about this thing I read in the Repubblica a week or so ago about this. It's not a, it's not a festival, but it's a it's a literature park or a reading park for children in Aosta, which is in the far northwest of Italy, set out along an abandoned railway. And I think they've recently bought the old station as well. But it's all about kind of staging these fun encounters with books and, and words. And, and there's this maze um, where, you, where you to progress through it, you have to solve clues and learn words and learn about different characters and uh, either a readings and performances and workshops. And it all just sounds really lovely. And I guess it's about you know, raising a new generation of, of readers and writers. That sounds terrific. I imagine, I, is it full of nooks? I imagine it's because it's in Italy, so it won't need it. And I keep thinking, has it got shelter from the rain? But it won't need it because it's in Italy. They can just read outdoors. It's fine. Well, it's Aosta, so they'll get a lot of snow. Oh, okay. <laughs> but no, well, so it, they, close it, they close it when it rains, I think. I think it actually said that in the news story. When it rains, it's closed. Uh, but they have chaise longs, <laughs> which is very oh, fancy, so, and a tree good, house. Yeah. Um, oh, and yeah, the station building once they once they finish refurbing it. So, so there you go. Yeah. So take take if you want to take your kids to the park for a read, nip off to Northern Italy. <laughs> now, say you're an international poetry lover, an activist, and wondering what to read this season. Well, we have just the thing, a little red book of Russian feminist poetry that you can, according to our reviewer, tuck into your pocket and take onto the barricades with you. Sasha Dogdale, herself a poet and translator, has reviewed this book, F Letter, for us. And a word of warning here, a lot of the poems um, in the book do deal with sexual violence, so um, we will be talking about that. Um, the book begins with a manifesto by the poet Galina Rimbu. We're also reviewing Rimbu's own book of poems called Life in Space, and we're delighted that Sasha Dugdale joins us today. Sasha, many thanks for talking to us. Hello, thank you very much for asking me. Well, can you tell us about this, this collective platform? So the platform's called F Writing, which has produced the book F Letter. Can you tell us about the platform, please? Yes, the platform was set up um, as a group of like-minded people, really, um, in 2017 in St. Petersburg. And the beginning of it was seminars and a kind of activism, group communal activism. And it was for feminist writers and also for queer writing and the audience and the writers were made up of feminists and LGBTQ plus writers. The name of the book, F Letter, 
um, is a sort of translation of the Russian F. Pismore, but F. Pismore is in itself a kind of Russian calque of écriture féminine. So that's where the name comes from. Um, and the, the online platform, if you go on it, and I think the links in the review, there's a lot of work on there. Um, it's a very co communal, collective feel to it. Um, lots of different voices, translations, prose, poetry. So to give you a little sort of insight, some of the recent work includes some new translations of Audre Lorde, uh, work by Rebecca Perry and poetry and some short stories. And it's a it's a really kind of capacious remit. So it's a kind of vibrant online community. And but this is the first publication, isn't it? But in fact, it's, this book was published in the UK, wasn't it? Not in Russia. What do we know why that is? Well, I've done some a little bit of research into rather fruitless research, I'm afraid to say, into Isolari, who are very secretive, actually, about their editorial. And Isolari do a series of subscriber books, I think one every couple of months. I've, I've actually subscribed because I was really impressed by this beautiful, tiny book. And so we don't, I don't know very much about them, about their editorial, about their approach, but they've done not only this book, but another book by Evgeny Belarusitz, which is just coming out this month. So they obviously have quite an interest in Russian post-Soviet writing. I think one of the reasons why the um, F letter might have opted to produce its first anthology in English or in bilingual version is that they talk a lot in the introduction about the very male um, gatekeeping, the very male publishing industry in Russia, and um, the way that that's shaped Russian literature and the Russian literary scene. So it's possible that Isolari offer a far more neutral space for the um, promotion of, of writing. I did wonder about that, and I wondered whether they had encountered obstacles uh, sort of officially or or not, you know, to publication. Um, and you say that there's, I mean, there's quite an interesting story about that the, the, it was awarded a prize, wasn't it? But then there's a story that goes with that. Yes. Um, in 2020, the um, collective was awarded the Andre Biello Prize. And the Andre Biello Prize is a very prestigious Russian literary prize named after Andre Biello, the modernist writer, poet and prose writer, and the prize is divided up. So there's a prize for poetry and a prize for prose and, and so on. But they won the prize for poetry, criticism and projects. And in fact, they refused to accept the prize. And um, they wrote a lot about why they'd refused to accept it. And it's really interesting to read. I'm not sure if a lot of their arguments exist in English translation yet, but you can read them all in Russian at their site. And I think what what is particularly interesting about it is that the site is very collective and very democratic and there are lots of voices. And so when they they were awarded the prize or nominated for the prize, they had a kind of vote about whether they should accept it or not. And as a result of the vote, they decided not to. But a lot of the participants in the site then wrote letters or pieces of prose and a number of those are up online. And then there was a sort of polemical discussion with one of the judges, Dmitry Kuzmin, himself um, a translator and poet of, of, of great note. It was a very interesting polemic, um, partly because it didn't feel as, um, I don't know, it, somehow it felt more respectful than some of the polemics that happened in, in English language forums. And it was, was really interesting. There's so many different opinions on why they didn't accept the prize. I was really caught by quite a lot of those were about the fact that the Biello Prize is basically a sort of establishment prize. Um, and it exists in a space that is very male, full of male gatekeepers and in a space where a lot of gendered violence, as they term it, happens. So there was a sort of refusal to enter into that space. And the fact that the Billy Prize sets up a kind of cultural field, it sets out markers for a Russian literary culture, and they didn't want to be part of that. So there's all those arguments. But another particularly interesting and, to my mind, really pertinent argument was that um, they were named as a collective, whereas actually they think of themselves as a lot of of individual voices and those individual voices weren't recognized in the nomination. Oh I see, so they don't want to be seen as a collective, I suppose maybe they don't want to be defined by other people I guess. Mm. Yes. And and as, as you say that there, there was it's talk, it talks about um, it talks about very difficult issues as you say gendered violence, sexual violence, all sorts of, of, of violence. What's the poetry like? What's the approach to that? That's a difficult thing to do in, in any format. Is there a way of tackling these very difficult 
subjects? Well, what strikes me about the book, and I should just say a few words about the format because it is rather lovely and I, I do really recommend it. It's um, I measured it for this podcast. It's 11 centimetres tall and 7 centimetres Good, I'm glad wide. you measured it. We should get <laughs> exclusive, exclusive. We should get everyone to measure the book. <laughs> the, essential, the essential data there. And it's this fantastic orange colour and um, it has a big Russian letter F on the front cover and it's really striking. And it's, it's a very kind of stout little I really like little books. So I'm really, inter- I was really excited by this one. And um and it's got Galina Rimbo's very long, very eloquent introduction and then work from a variety of different writers who are um, part of the F Letter Collective. And it opens with work by Lida Yusupova, who is a sort of more senior member of the collective. She herself now no longer lives in Russia. She divides her time between Canada and an island, I think, off Belize and has just published her, uh, an English language collection. And her work is very firmly sort of situated in domestic violence, gendered violence. And she has a really quite brilliant and and very interesting poem about a rape scene that took place in a sort of Soviet landscape. I really find this poem extraordinary because as the rape begins to happen, all she finds herself able to say is, which is quite a polite thing to say. And it means this isn't right. You know, I'm, I'm kind of not happy with this. And she repeats that. And in this tiny book, her repeated, this isn't right, takes up you know, several pages, really, and, and it, of, of a sort of kind of repeated scream, but it's so sort of suppressed and so sort of, it, it really struck me. Um, the poem generally really struck me, the sort of set, sense of laying out a landscape, a party, a late night, a suburb, and then this, this really horrible rape so she's one of the, the the older members of the collective and the more recent poets, all of whom I think are mostly born after 1990, um, Daria Sirianka, Galina Rimbo herself, Iganna Jabarwa, they work with very different themes. It's really hard to say anything um, general about the style of poetry. Quite a lot of it is quite documentary, quite verbatim. It's quite fragmentary. It's very hard hitting um, and it, I think, goes back to Galina's idea that there is no difference between politics and personal and that, that all poetry needs to be sort of infused with politics. And as you say, it's a, it's a, it's a bilingual edition, which has got lots of, lots of translators. Um, I wondered if we've heard a little bit of, of Russian and English there. Would you mind reading us um, maybe the lines that you've quoted in your piece from Galina Rimbu's poem, Summer, which is, I think, translated by Vagina Maud. Is that right? Yes, that's right. This poem uh, by Galina um, is in a translation by the Belarusian poet, bilingual poet, Valjina Mort. And it's a really beautiful translation of this really quite heady, lyrical, um, but also very sad memory of, of summers in her child, in Galina's childhood. Um, it's in sections, and this is the beginning of section 10. Kislý sup v staré kastrulje, glansový poster ikona nad stalom. Розовые, как глаза Марии, колбаса, целлюлозы, ветер с ангелом смога из форточки, горючие розы заводов. And those lines translate uh, to sour soup in an old pot, glam poster icon above the table, cellulose sausage, pink like Mary's eyes. Wind carries the angel of smog through the window, burning roses of factories. So you can see it's incredibly lyrical, despite being about really intense, really intense poverty. And the, the other book that you reviewed was a book by Galina Rimbu and herself, wasn't it? Life in Space. That has a kind of ambitious remit or aim as well, doesn't it? Yes, this is fantastic poetry. I think Galina uh, Rimbu is, is a really great poet. And um, I can say that absolutely unequivocally. I'm sort of blown away by her poetry. It is extremely political it is a, a a charting of of life of, of a childhood in um in in the huge poverty of the post perestroika period in russia um and i think galina comes from i think from siberia and her family were you know working class her father presumably was trying to make ends meet by doing lots of little jobs and she documents this all very carefully in her poetry along with some of the sort of images 
um, of her of, of this sort of post-Soviet landscape, really, this sort of disintegrating industrial landscape. And it's it's really it is political poetry. It's really distinctly political, and 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 yet it still has this extraordinary lyricism about it, which I find I find remarkable and captivating. And um, you know, some of the images they really stick with you. They're they're fantastic. They've there and and the language is very beautiful too. It's 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 um she uses a lot of 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 sound. I think the poems are not rhymed. They're they're free verse. Um, but she uses a lot of sound to connect lines and to connect thoughts and ideas and images. So um, and that comes through on the whole in the translations, which are which are good. But but you, you yeah really 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 something. I think when I was reading her, I was also looking at the work of Keats, who has his two hundredth anniversary of his death this year and I found so many parallels between Keats and Galena Rimbu the sort of intense questioning lyric the sort of really um, you know heady almost consumerism this desire to eat up images um, in both of them and also something profoundly sad and um, a, a note of wasting away of fading away. On a, on a, on a, on a broader linguistic point um, about how we sort of you know whether we whether we call um, the the, people, the poets we were talking about earlier a collective, we don't, or whether we call them poets or or we don't. But the, I'm interested in the tension you, you mentioned over that one that particular word, poet, um, and and how they they would choose to define themselves. Because I suppose it sort of surprised me how it pushes back against arguments that we've been having in in the West, say for you know, for gender to be left outside of professional labels. Yes, it's very interesting. They, um, the the collective um, have very strongly voted in favour of using a kind of, I don't know how you translate it into English, but a femininative, which is a feminine ending. Um, and in Russian, um, nouns often have feminine endings, suffixes. So in the past, it would have been Poet uh, for a male poet, poetessa for a female poet, just as you know, actor, actress are the same as the English poet, poetess, actor, actress, and um, they've uh, returned. They want to return to that, um, and they've even what I coined what is in part a neologism, poet ka, so putting the suffix ka at the end of words, curator ka, so a curator ka, kind of female curator, and. Um, this is, I mean, this has been used in the past, but it is really very much their sort of new invention. And I think one of the uh, the ideas is that they they feel that poets in the past, having rejected poetessa as Tataiva and Ahmata, very strongly rejected the rather condescending female ending because they wanted to be seen as serious poets. Um, Russian women poets have always wanted to be known by the masculine poet um, because only then can they be taken seriously. And their argument is that in the sort of very masculine and patriarchal world of Russia, the woman's view is very important. The gendered view is very important. And returning that suffix is important to, to show the kind of specificity really of that view. So it's, 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 a, it's not a, a universally accepted um, change. And there is some sort of tension, um, not least, um, I think, um, Dmitry Kuzmin, uh, perhaps the, the jury member who wrote wrote from the Belly Prize, made the point that you know whether they were called poets or poetka or poetesses, Russian women's poetry has been a force to be reckoned with in the 20th, 20th century and has a very has had a very strong vision um, and shape of its experiences. Um, so all of those debates really are, are, are raging. It's interesting that they didn't go back to the old word. Um, which sounds, which is like poetess, basically like our word. And poetess to us now sounds just a bit ridiculous, isn't it? It sounds like someone fiddling about, not really doing it properly, which you can understand why those earlier um, women writers wanted to be called poets. But it's interesting that they've made their own word and they've said, no, we're not, I'm not a poetess, I'm not a poet, I'm, we're this new thing. I think they have also embraced the word poetess, but poetical. Oh, have they? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, okay. I, I think so, but the, the word poetka is the, 
In fact, it's not a new word. It was used also to describe women poets very disparagingly in the 19th and early 20th centuries. So they're kind of reclaiming it. Yes, that's right. Yes. And but adding it to other words is is very new. So kuratorka or redaktorka or, or, you know, these other words that they're um, feminizing are definitely neologisms. It is interesting, isn't it? Because in lots of other ways, that, as Thea says, there's a move away from that, you know, from chair, man or woman to chair or that kind of thing. But then sometimes they're saying, no, I want to say I am doing this as a woman. Mm, it's not an irrelevance. Yeah. But then then the words do get in the way, because in English, if you called someone, if I had introduced you as a, a translator and poetess, I think you might have gone, really? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe maybe I should have. It's very. Dis- I think it's probably. Uh, I mean, it, it is an issue here, but it's certainly an issue in Russia, where uh, I think um, patriarchal notions of society press very heavily on this group, and um, they write very explicitly about, for example, the Russian Orthodox Church saying that it's it, it's it's allowed to publicly punish. Oh no, sorry, to um, physically punish women and children or, you know, domestic violence going up sort of uh, a thousandfold, you know, all these things that press very heavily on them as um, a sort of violations of um, gendered violations. So I think, I mean, that's certainly not to say that we don't have plenty of uh, domestic violence of our own. It's just perhaps it feels very, very pressing in Russia at the moment. Okay, well, then the 11 centimetre book to take on the barricades this summer is F Letter. Um, And thank you very much, Sasha Dogdale, for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you. That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Janet Todd, Derek Hughes and Sasha Dugdale. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Ben Mitchell. We'll be back next week. But for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.